0: Thank you for your good singing this morning, and as you can probably tell, it is a Lord's Supper Sunday for us, and when we've done that this year, we've paused in our series through Ephesians, and whenever we observe the Lord's Supper, we've been doing a series about what is the Lord's Supper, why is it so significant, what does it mean? And so that's what we will be doing today. You can go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's a little bit ironic that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper on the same Sunday as Reformation Sunday. Because the Lord's Supper was actually an issue that divided two of the major reformers, Martin Luther and Huldrych Zwingli. So these two were major leaders in the Reformation movement back in the 1500s. They agreed on pretty much everything except how the Lord's Supper should be observed and what its significance was and those sorts of things. And so actually these two men, there was a prince who... He said, You guys agree on so much. Can't you meet together and try and work this out? And neither of them really wanted to, but the prince convinced him to go and meet at what is called the Marburg Colloquy. And here's a painting. Obviously, they didn't have cameras back then, but a painting of what that uh, might have looked like. You can see Martin Luther's the one there pointing to the table, and Zwingli's the one with the black robe holding his hand out. And so they met there and they discussed this issue of the Lord's Supper together. And they agreed on 13 out of 14 points. But when it came to the very last point, they just could not agree. And the the issue of that point was, how is Christ present with us when we observe the Lord's Supper? You know, both of these men were rejecting the roman catholic view of transubstantiation which says that the bread and the wine actually turn into the the body and blood of jesus they were rightly rejecting that martin luther didn't want to move as far away from that as zwingli martin luther was saying that no christ still is present with us he he the bread and wine don't uh transform into his body and blood but Christ is there in and around and under the elements. He called it consubstantiation. And he was like, I don't really know how to explain this. It's a mystery, but Christ is there. And Zwingli would go even farther away and say, well, no, these are symbols. They represent Christ's body and blood. And that's the view that our church holds, the view that Scripture supports, we believe. But... If you know anything about Martin Luther, you know that he was stubborn. He would not budge once he made up his mind. And he was not afraid to use some pretty strong language to let you know that. And so when they concluded, we just cannot agree on these, this 14th point. We agree on everything else but this one point, Martin Luther pointed to the table And he said, Zwingli, yours is a different spirit. Basically meaning you're not saved. You are not a Christian. Later, Martin Luther would write that Zwingli was perverted with no part in Christ. And when Zwingli died a couple years later, he said that Zwingli died in sin and great blasphemy. Wow! Wow! Strong language over this issue of the Lord's Supper. Well, it is significant, but it is very sad that these two men could not agree and be united on this issue because as we've seen in our series, the Lord's Supper, one of the major points of it is to celebrate our unity as the body of Christ, as His family. One of the main things that we do when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper is that we are, in fact, coming together. We are coming as members of the body of Christ. And so it is sad, it is a little ironic that these men could not agree on this. But when we consider the truths of the Lord's Supper, it should unite us as a body, not divide us. So what have we seen so far in our series on the Lord's Supper. Well, we've seen that, first, it is a meal to remember. As we mentioned, these elements do not transform in any way into the body and blood of Christ. They are representative, symbolic of Christ's shed blood, His broken body. They remind us of the sacrifice that Christ paid, that He did in our place for our sin. Also, this is a family meal. It is only for the children of God. Only for those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ as their Savior. It is not for unbelievers. It is a family meal and it reminds us, it celebrates the unity that we have as the family of God. As members of Christ's body. And last time we saw that it is a foretaste of the feast. That we as the church of Christ, we are called the bride of Christ multiple times in the Bible. And one day Christ is going to return. He will gather the church, his bride, to himself. And we will celebrate then a full, glorious, heavenly feast with Christ. And so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we'll see as we read, we celebrate this until Christ returns. This is a foretaste of what it will be like to sit at that heavenly marriage feast all together in perfect unity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today, we will see finally that the Lord's Supper is a meal of examination. This is probably the aspect of the Lord's Supper that many of us are most familiar with. But what exactly does that mean? Well, if you're with me in 1 Corinthians 11, as I said, we'll be, we've been going through this passage and different parts of it, and we're going to be looking at the last half of it or so today, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 34, but we're going to read starting in verse 17 just to get the entire context of what's going on here. To summarize what we're going to see today, though, we'll see that observing the Lord's Supper unworthily brings judgment. So examine yourself before observing. So let's read 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17, and we'll go down through the end of the chapter, and we'll see what God has to say to us through the Apostle Paul here. It says, Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, Since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's supper, for at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Let's pray. Lord, what we are contemplating and meditating on today truly is a serious, somber matter. I pray that you would help us to take it seriously, that we would not respond lightly or glibly, but that you would show us the the guilt of our sin that we would see the price that you had to pay to cleanse us of our sin. But even as we grieve over our sin and repent of it, may we rejoice in you, Lord. And in the forgiveness, the full, complete, free forgiveness that you Have purchased for us. Hallelujah. What a Savior you are. And I pray that as I speak this morning, you would empower me by your Spirit. You would give me clarity of thought, that I would teach your word accurately. And even as I prayed earlier, that you would give us ears to hear that we would respond rightly to your word, to your instruction. Open our eyes to see sin, move us to repent of sin, and give us joy in the forgiveness of our sin through you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you can tell... This passage that Paul is writing to this Corinthian church is not a light-hearted one. It is a heavy passage, a serious passage. And the verses that we're going to be looking at today, verses 27 through 34, really highlight that seriousness when he talks about judgment. He says first off, that observing the Lord's Supper unworthily brings judgment. In those last seven verses, Paul mentions judgment six different times. And he mentions three specific types of judgment as well. Now, what was it that was bringing judgment on these people, on this church? It was that they were observing the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Paul says in verse 27 that observing the Lord's Supper unworthily makes you guilty. He says there, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So he says, so then. He's continuing his argument here. He's continuing what he's been talking about. That's why we read the entire passage to get the context. What was going on in this Corinthian church? Well, the situation was that when they would gather together on the, the times to observe the Lord's Supper, the wealthy people would come and they would bring their own bread, they would bring their own wine, and they would basically have a big social party for themselves. And the poor people were left out. You know, they're sitting over there in the corner by themselves. They can't provide the bread and the wine for themselves And so they get left out, and the the rich people are sitting there, creating this division, looking down on the poor people in the body, basically saying, yeah, they're not worthy enough, they're not good enough to eat with us. That's the situation here that Paul is referring to. And in verse 27, he says it is an unworthy manner of observing the Lord's Supper. The idea is that it's improper. It doesn't fit the situation. And because of the significance of what's going on here, it really is unworthy. It's it's shameful what they are doing. It's behavior that is improper or unbecoming or unworthy of such a significant time. So if the way that we observe the Lord's Supper is improper or unworthy, What does that make us? What is the result? He says that you will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Literally, it's just you will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And throughout this passage, Paul has been using that image of the church as Christ's body. Here, he is actually referring to Christ's actual flesh and blood. That is because he's Um, He mentions the word blood so we know he's not just referring to the church as Christ's body We're never called the blood of the Lord in scripture So here he is saying you in some sense if you observe the Lord in an unworthy manner You are sinning directly against Christ's own flesh and blood What does that mean though? It is hard to nail down exactly what Paul is getting at here. Remember what I said, the sin the Corinthians were committing was that they were creating this division in the church and they were carrying that divisive attitude, that scorn into their observation of the Lord's Supper. So that's the sin here. But Paul says you're not just sinning against the other members of the church you're also sinning against Christ himself. That's the idea that I think Paul is trying to communicate here. If you think back to Acts chapter 9, Paul's conversion on the Damascus road, he found out this truth for himself. Paul was going around, he was persecuting Christians, putting them in prison. He's on his way to Damascus to go find more Christians, and Jesus appears to him. Paul's blinded, he hears this voice, and what does Christ say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, had Paul arrested Jesus? No. But he had arrested and persecuted members of Christ's body, members of the church. And in doing that, Paul was directly sinning against persecuting Jesus Christ himself. And that seems to be the same idea here, that when we create division in the body of Christ, when we carry those divisions into our remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, as Matthew Henry said, in some sense, it's like we are crucifying the Lord over again. We are sinning directly against Jesus himself. And I don't know of a more serious guilt that we could bring on ourselves, right? Than to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And so that is why in verse 29, Paul goes on to explain what this means. What does this mean that we observe unworthily and what happens because of this guilt? He says in verse 29 for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself so as we've mentioned observing the lord's supper unworthily means not recognizing the body and here paul shifts back to this metaphor of the church as christ's body that us together, we are members of the church of Jesus Christ. We are members of his body. And so Paul says when you observe the Lord's Supper and you look at the other members of Christ's body and say, I don't need that person, or they are beneath me, or I will not associate with them, you're not recognizing the body in the way that you should. You're looking at each other through these human selfish values rather than looking at someone and saying, you are a fellow member of Christ's body. We are united together in Jesus and we will celebrate this meal together. That's what they should have been doing. But instead, they were creating this division within the body and that was ruining their observation of the Lord's Supper, it was bringing judgment on them. And when they were carrying that attitude in, it's like, it would be like a hand on your body, you know, looking at your leg and saying, well, you're useless. I don't need you. I wish you would just get cut off and be gone. That is not a proper attitude, especially when we remember The sacrifice that unites us together. It's the same for us as it was for the Corinthians. If we observe the Lord's Supper while we are divided or bitter or looking down on someone else in the church, we should expect some form of judgment from the Lord. But amazingly, As Paul explains in verses 30 to 32, this judgment is also mixed with mercy. Did you notice that? That observing the Lord's Supper unworthily brings a merciful judgment. Look at verse 30. He says, This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So he begins here with the type of judgment and its physical affliction. He says, because you're under this judgment, that's why so many of you are sick. That's why so many of you are ill. And some of you, many of you have even fallen asleep. That's just a nice way to say that they died. Paul says that judgment goes back to your divisive observance of the Lord's Supper. Sometimes God brings these sorts of judgments into our lives to make us wake up to our sin so we will repent of it. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Problem of Pain. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, this doesn't mean that every time something bad happens in your life or every time someone gets sick, that it's directly because of sin. If you think of the the blind man in John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are walking along. They see this man blind from birth, and they say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither of them sinned. But I tell you that this blindness is for the glory of God. So not always, sickness is not always a judgment for sin. But we see here that sometimes it is. I knew a man when I was growing up that he sensed the Lord's call to ministry, but he kept rejecting it, and eventually he got this mysterious illness that put him into the hospital. And that whole time he was in the hospital, he was praying, the Lord was dealing with him, and finally he said, okay, Lord, I will do what you want me to do. If you want me to be a preacher, I will preach. And he instantly started getting better. Sometimes illness is part of the Lord's judgment on us. So when we get sick, when we face some sort of physical affliction in life, we can't automatically say, well, this, I've sinned and I, I need to repent and examine myself, and, but we should. It is on us to say, okay, is there something in my life that I need to repent of? If there's not, then the Lord is using it for some other good purpose in our life. Either way, this is motivated by God's mercy and his love for us as his children. That's why he says in verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. That word discipline is literally the word for child rearing. It's the way that you raise and train a child. And that does involve discipline, right? When they do something wrong, when they persist in disobedience, you have to discipline them to get them on the right track. And you're not doing that as their parent because you hate them. You're doing it because you love them, right? You want them to go down the right path, the safe path, the healthy path. And so you discipline them to put them on that path, and that's exactly what God does to us. Because what's the final purpose here? So that we may not be condemned with the world. God brings this discipline into his children's lives to turn us from our sin so that we will escape that final judgment of hell, the lake of fire, that final condemnation that unbelievers face. This is a merciful judgment. It is painful, yes, but God is doing it for our good. And that is the serious consequence of observing the Lord's Supper in an improper or unworthy manner. It makes us guilty, and it brings judgment from the Lord. But we thankfully know that it is a merciful judgment from our Father. So what should we do? How should we observe the Lord's Supper? What is the proper way? How can we avoid this judgment? Well, as our big idea says, observing the Lord's Supper unworthily brings judgment. So examine yourself before observing. Let's look at verse 28 again. (coughs) Verse 28, Paul says, Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. And then down in verse 31, he says, If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. So what do we need to do? Well, first off, examine yourself to avoid judgment. What's the idea here? What does it mean to examine yourself? It means you're looking at your heart, at your life. You're seeing if there is sin that you need to repent of, that you've been out of fellowship with the Lord in some way, and you are trying to make that right. And I do want to point out that this is examining yourself, not other people. Okay, When we observe the Lord's Supper, you're supposed to be looking at your heart and your life. You don't look around at all the other people and go, well, I bet they've got a lot to repent of. I can't believe they're still sitting here. I know they're sinful. No. Look at you. Look at yourself. So we've mentioned that the specific sin... is targeting here is this divisiveness in the church division in the church and there's lots of room for us to examine our hearts just with that right is there bitterness in your heart towards someone in the church are you holding a grudge do you need to apologize to someone for hurting them in some way Is there someone in the church that you look down on and you refuse to associate with them for some reason? Maybe you've gossiped about someone or slandered them in some way behind their back. I mean, there's a lot of ways we could apply this, just this idea. But I do think it is legitimate to expand this principle to any sort of sin. Not just sins that divide the church, but any sort of sin. I mean, imagine if someone came in when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and he was like, oh, I just love all you guys. I don't have anything against you. You are so wonderful. And he's right. And you say, oh, that's great. Well, how was your week? And he says, well, Monday, I robbed a bank. And then on Tuesday... I took the money and got some new fishing gear with it. And then on Thursday, I skipped work so I could go use that fishing gear. But man, I just love all you guys here in the church. And are we going to say, well, he's not dividing the church, so go ahead. No, of course not. We can expand this to all of our sin. Christ's sacrifice was not just for one type of sin. It was for all of our sin, every kind of sin. So we should examine our hearts for any sin, but we don't just stop at identifying it. It's not okay to say, okay, yeah, I have this sin, and then do nothing about it. Not confess it, not ask God for forgiveness, take no action to make things right. We also have to repent. We also must repent to avoid judgment. And even though Paul doesn't use that specific word, the idea is very clear in verses 33 and 34. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. So Paul is basically saying here, you need to make this situation right. You need to change. What you're doing is causing division. It's selfish. It's proud. You need to repent of that. And here's how you should be doing it. When you gather together, you welcome each other. This word is really a a rich word. It's the idea of eagerly waiting for something or eagerly waiting for someone. You can think of the Corinthians. They're gathering there. They're waiting for everyone to get there for the Lord's Supper. And they're looking around. Hey, where's Timothy? Where's Priscilla? I can't wait for them to get here because I I love seeing them. I want to celebrate this remembrance of Christ's sacrifice together. That's the idea. That's what they should be doing. That's what we should be doing. So in order for them to avoid this judgment, they had to identify their sin, repent of it, and make the necessary changes. They should move from a proud division to a loving unity as they observe the Lord's Supper. And that can't happen without repentance. So when we examine our hearts and we find sin, it's not enough to just stop at that and say, yes, that's sin. We need to repent of it, to ask God for forgiveness on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, to trust in Christ that that is forgiven, that it is cleansed by his blood, and to Purpose in our hearts and our minds to make any necessary changes that need to happen to turn away from that sin. And when that happens, the Lord's Supper really does become a joyful celebration together. It's not a time of shame, a time of division. It's a time where we can come together And we can remember together what Jesus has done for us. That our Lord, the God of heaven, came down and he became a man and lived sinlessly in our place. And he shed his blood and he died on that cross for you and me because of our sin. And that he rose from the dead so that anyone who trusts in him will be saved. They will be forgiven. When we repent of our sin and we come together in unity around the gospel, boy, that is a celebration. There is joy. There is love when we do that. So let's summarize this with three basic steps. Number one, examine yourself. As we move in in a little bit to our observation of the Lord's Supper, examine yourself. Is there sin that I need to repent of? Do I need to make changes in my life? And especially, have I sinned in some way that has created division in the church? Secondly, repent of that sin. Like I said, we can't stop at just identifying it. We have to repent of it as well. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. So pray, ask God to forgive you on the basis of what Christ has done. And even if you need to get up and make a phone call or pull someone aside and talk to them, you're going to have time before the Lord's Supper if you need to do that. Okay, to make things right and no one is going to look down on you for that We will rejoice with you in that And that's our final step Rejoice together When we repent of our sin we trust in Christ and we can have confidence that because of his finished work on the cross We are forgiven And it should move us to joyfully, lovingly celebrate this meal together. Christ will forgive you. So don't be afraid to examine your heart, to uproot that sin. Because Christ's shed blood guarantees that when you turn from it and trust in him, you will be forgiven. And that is something to rejoice in. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to move into our observation of the Lord's Supper, and we'll have a a handout. You should have a handout. If you don't, we can get you one, but you should have a handout that was in the bulletin that we'll use to uh, guide us through our observation time. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll put these steps into practice for ourselves today. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you and praise you for what you have done for us. That you who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in you. What marvelous truth. Lord, help us to see the seriousness of our sin. Humble us before you. Search our hearts and show us our sin, Lord, even if it is painful to see. Break us over it. Move us to repent of it and help us to confidently trust in you, knowing that you died for us and rose for us to be forgiven. So work in our hearts now as is needed. We pray for your glory and in your name. Amen.